Hey, and welcome to week 40 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and with me this week is Jack Altman, CEO of Lattice, a modern performance management system that's focused on helping people run their companies better. It's true that employee retention is critical to a company's success, but more importantly, Jack knows that people spend most of their waking hours at work, and Lattice hopes to make those hours better. I greatly admire Jack's own introspection and passion for Lattice's mission, and can't wait for you all to hear his story. And with that, let's hear from Jack. Jack, thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm really excited to have you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about your background and actually about Lattice. So what is Lattice and how did you come up with the idea? So Lattice does performance management software. Um, so we provide software to companies to help them do performance reviews, um, set and track employee goals. We have mechanisms for employees and managers to check in on a weekly basis um, and to give each other feedback whenever they want to. Um, so that's what the product does. We mostly work with companies between, um, you know, 500 employees and under, and we've been doing this for about a year and a half now. So the way that we kind of got to Lattice was my co-founder and I had been at a company called Teespring before, and we had, he had been the uh, head of engineering there and I ran business development and corporate development. And we had talked to each other a lot about wanting to start a company together at some point and we felt a lot of pain as Teespring went through growth. And so we got to see a ridiculous amount of growth at Teespring. So when we got there, you know, it was about 15 employees. Uh, by the time we left, just a couple years later, it was several hundred. Um, and, and through that, we got to see very up close and personally how important management is. And so feeling the pain from the lack of what we now know is performance management, I think that inspired us to want to solve this. And so when we, when we left to work on this, we actually worked on a very focused part of the problem, which was goal setting. And so one of the things that we thought was very important was giving employees a way to set their goals within the context of the broader company goals. So we thought it would be this sort of beautiful, harmonious thing if everybody in the company knew what the company goals were, what the team and department goals were, and then how their individual goals tied into that bigger picture. And so that was what we set out to start to do. And for the first part of uh, 2016, that was, that was what we worked on. And we got some customers, um, people you know, were willing to try it. Um, we even got a few people to, to pay for the product, but we, we, we had the sense that it just, it just wasn't enough. As a company process, this alone just wasn't something that was solving a burning, burning need. People did want their, their goals tracked, but you know, rolling out a whole new software to everybody as a company has a lot of costs associated with it. Um, and and it, it just it just didn't quite pull us enough into the market. Luckily, over the summer, we decided to talk to our customers and say, okay, this isn't quite good enough. What, what can we do? And we talked to, you know, probably 100 people, you know, typically heads of people operations team and HR departments. And the thing that came up time and time again was, performance reviews were just so difficult. It's complicated to run performance reviews. People don't know how they should do them. They're, they're actually very emotional because they you know, bring in how people have performed and compensation gets involved. And we heard this enough times that we kind of, we, we kind of sort of smelled smoke and we thought there might be some, some fire behind that. So we really pushed into that. And we actually built a, a V1 of performance reviews in just a few months. And 
the sort of change in market pull was was very dramatic. And so from there, we were able to you know start you know acquiring customers and to you know grow at a much more reasonable rate. And it went from conversations that were you know oh this looks cool you know I'll give gold a try to I really need this. I need this feature done by two weeks because I'm running a performance review. Can you have this thing for me with many follow-ups and people people really pulling out of us? And that became sort of the beginning of, of the sort of full suite. And that's how we got here. Yeah, I love that journey because so I actually handled OKRs at my last company. And I thought it was a really great you know assignment. It gets everyone more aligned on goals. But it was really a pain point for me because I was the one organizing it. And so for me, if you could think of me, I was running growth, but I was kind of helping out with operations. You know, I was the one having to hack together the Google Sheet. So I can understand that pain point. But for the rest of the company, it was more of a nice to have. Whereas I do agree with you on feedback, the feedback loop. And this has been from when I worked at Deloitte to when I worked at smaller startups to larger startups. It's always that I think the best Actually, I think the best people and best performers are the only ones who really ask for 360 feedback, but it is daunting to have. And I think um, just finishing up business school, really pushing, you know, getting feedback. We do so much in orientation about, you know, getting these 360 feedbacks and being aware of your faults, but I actually think it makes you stronger. So I think that actually, it's really interesting. I do see that as the bigger sell. Absolutely. Yeah. And for us, we really felt a we felt a very strong difference and goals still matters. And it's part of the performance review, part of performance management overall. But the sort of night and day change was was really noticeable for us. Yes. And so let's just talk about what it's like growing a startup in San Francisco. Did you ever consider starting anywhere else? Were you simply there because you went into Y Combinator with your co-founder or is that where you're from, et cetera? So I'm originally from St. Louis, actually. Um, okay. And I, I I spent my first 18 years of life in in St. Louis, and there actually are some startups there, and there's there's a bit of a growing scene. But I had never really post college life, I had never really considered going back there to to do to do any sort of work. I lived in New York for a few years after college, um, and then I've mm-hmm. been in San Francisco since. And I think to me, I think there are you know I I think you can build a startup anywhere. I really do believe that. Um, I think there are some 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 certain advantages to being in San Francisco when you get started, there's, you know, there are just a lot more people here than anywhere else that are interested in being part of a team and taking a risk either from, you know, an investor perspective or an early employee perspective. I even find from a customer perspective that people are, people are comfortable, you know, buying software from, you know, completely unestablished companies. And so I do think there are advantages to being in San Francisco. Although I think it's, I think of course, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously possible to do this anywhere. And, you know, I think because of sort of just the momentum of having been here before, um, we we never actually really thought about it. It was just sort of, we were starting a company and this is where we lived. Got it. All right. So you mentioned St. Louis. So let's talk about your earlier years and kind of, you know, what it was like, what your family was like and what your parents did for a living. So you grew up in St. Louis. Grew up in St. Louis. Yeah. My my mom was a doctor and my dad did real estate development for low-income housing in St. Louis. Okay. And we lived a very Midwestern sort of suburban suburban life. So, you know, I had a, what, you know, what I now look back at is, I think, a very sheltered childhood in, in a nice way. I think, you know, I have a lot of friends who grew up in, you know, cities like San Francisco or New York. And I think that that childhood experience is, is very different than, you know, growing up in a suburb in, in the Midwest. And I'm very grateful for it. I think it was, I think it was something that just gave me a very, a very, you know, strong and steady foundation. I grew up with two older brothers and a little sister. Actually, I've, you know, since being out in San Francisco, 
up until very recently, I lived with my two older brothers for, for, for three and a half years out here. Um, so wow. we've, we've maintained a very close, very close friendship and that's been great. And so, yeah. So after, you know, it was, it was 18 years in St. Louis and then, and then I went to the East coast for a bit and then I've been here. So when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up originally? You know, what's funny. I, I, I never had, I never had a clear thing that I was sure I wanted to do. I had tons of interests. There were probably times when I thought I wanted to, you know, work in comedy or entertainment as a writer or something like that. There were times in, you know, college where I loved, where I actually loved economics and I thought maybe I wanted to, you know, be an economist. So I've actually been, I've been all over and I never had one thing. And I think, I think for me, um, I've never had one thing that I'm amazing at. I've always been more just pretty good at, at a lot of things. And so Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever had the one thing that, that pulled me towards that pulled me towards it. One of the things I like about my current job is it's actually useful to be able to go, you know, somewhat deep in a lot of areas without going all the way deep in any one particular sort of discipline. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I, I don't think I've known. And I think I've always sort of let my career just sort of take me where it's the next best step feels without needing to plan sort of 20 years in the future. So because you grew up in this traditional Midwest family, did you always know you were going to go to college or did you ever think about, you know, maybe taking a gap year or even just foregoing education altogether? You know, so our parents didn't pressure us in terms of homework or school or things like that. But my two older brothers, I think, were I'm not sure exactly where it started, but there was sort of never any doubt that my focus was to get the best grades possible in high school and go to a good college. And um, that there was that that path was sort of there without without me feeling like it was pressed on me. And it might have just been observing my yeah observing my older brothers who were both serious about school. And I think it was somewhat intrinsic. But I was always I was always you know in high school I was pretty serious about school and I always planned just for college and sort of steps like that. So I never had that, you know, looking back, I do kind of wish that I had done a year abroad because I talked to friends who have done that and they say it's such an amazing experience, but I sort of went, I sort of just went through that standard path and I was always going to do that. Yeah, I I agree though. I think, I think it's interesting that in Europe, it's much more common or even my friends in South America take a gap year to figure it out. And I, I do think it is beneficial. I think I would have had a lot more intention to go to college, but I'm like you with a lot of interest. So I, I do like learning about lots of different things, but you know. I think for everyone, it's a different journey. Um, I do. I find it really interesting though that you keep bringing up your older brothers because I have an older brother. And while I do think parenting is really important, I think a lot of my personality comes from that. And I actually think, you know, I read this article where your siblings are really the only relationship you have your entire life. You know, your partner you meet later in life, your parents most likely, you know, leave before you and and really they're the only people that shape your entire life. So I do find that dynamic really interesting. It sounds like they were very influential on you. I think that's totally true. And I think that's I think that the the sort of thing that you hear that the you know the people the five people closest to you are, you know, you're you're sort of a blend of them. I think that's mm. I think that's very true. And the interesting thing about your siblings is that they are there from early childhood to when you're a teenager to early adulthood and and hopefully throughout your life. That said, obviously, you know, parents have a massive impact as well, um, just because they play such a such a pivotal role. But I do think about this a lot. And I do think about how the people around you impact you. Um, and I think, you know, I think especially that very close inner circle has a humongous impact. Yes, definitely. I do. I'm curious about how parents affect the first child versus the later ones, because to mm-hmm. me, it seemed like I was always following my older brother around. <laughs> 
Yeah. But of course he has no one to follow around. So I'm a big believer in birth order on that topic as well. Like I think, <laughs> you know, first, middle and last child, I think those all have, I think those all have very specific things about them that I just, the patterns I see when I meet, you know, kids now, I'm, I just see it so clearly. Yes. And I also think gender dynamics are interesting because, you know, I was the youngest, but the only girl and we were only two. So it's the older brother, only boy. So I was like, well, we're both special in our own ways. But do you think yeah. you're the stereotypical middle child then? Um, it's funny because so there were three of us right together. And then my little sister came about five years later. And okay. so I think in a lot of ways, I feel like the youngest brother. And then there is also this dynamic where I have a younger sister. And so I got some of the, you know, what whatever it is that you get when you have a younger sibling. So I think <laughs> I probably have some mix, some mix of those two. Got it. And so, you know, you went to Teespring, but when did you first start thinking that you were going to be an entrepreneur? Was it before you even joined and you wanted to learn what being a startup was like, or did you have kind of an aha moment being like, I want to start my own company? It actually was before. So I, I think as soon as I, you know, got a taste of tech at all, I, I thought that I wanted to start a company. And so before Teespring, I had, you know, been doing seed stage venture investing and I got to do that luckily for, you know, a couple of years and I, I really loved it, but I felt inexperienced from an operating perspective and I thought that it would be really great for me to get operating experience. And so as much as I wanted to start a company, I thought that I thought that the thing that I should do first was get some tangible experience. And looking back, I'm so thankful that I did because I think so many of the things that I do every day now and, you know, along the journey of the last year would have been so much harder had I not had that experience. Starting a company, I think there are so many things that are independently difficult. And, you know, let's say there are 50 things that are difficult to do. And maybe these are things like hiring people and fundraising and doing product development and handling a frustrated customer or doing a sales process or whatever. Um, and you come up with some, there's some list of things that have to be done. And the more of those things that you don't have to learn on the job, the easier it is. And so if you only have to learn 20 new things rather than 50 new things, you 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 have a much better chance, I think, at at sort of getting through your your days and kind of kind of making progress. And so for me, checking off the box on some of those things so I didn't have to get comfortable with them for the first time on the job while I was getting comfortable with so many other things, I'm very grateful that I was able to do that. Do you think your experience at Teespring then was more influential than your experience on the VC side of things? I do. Yeah, I do. I think that my, I think my, in my experience at Teespring had a much more direct impact for, for, for me being prepared to do this, not just from, you know, the experience of managing people and of, you know, figuring out business strategy and doing deals and, um, you know, working with partners and all the kind of things I did there, but also just the experience itself of seeing what it's like to be inside a company and, being inside a, you know, a company like our current customers, I have a very good sense now of what it means to hear, oh, we're getting blocked by finance on something or, mm -hmm. you know, our CEO and our head of HR have differing views on how performance reviews ought to be done. And I have a good, or, you know, our, our employees on the engineering team don't feel heard. I can, I can relate to all of these things because I've lived inside of that environment. And I think, I think just being in that environment has made it much easier for me to empathize with our customer than I might have otherwise been able to. Yes, definitely. Especially because your product is one that would be applicable to your life that you had beforehand. But I, I also find it interesting when people come from, you know, one company 
and you're starting your own and how that relates to employee culture. So when you were starting this company, what did you want to take from Teespring? And were there things that you really wanted to make your own? Because it is, and it's interesting that you were there from 15 employees to 200 because the dynamic is just so different, especially when you have that explosive growth. And a lot of entrepreneurs say the most fun times are actually at the smaller stage, even though you're running around wishing you had more people on the team. Yeah, there was a lot that was wonderful about Teespring. I loved my time there. The people were were amazing. And so one of the things that I, and I think you're right that the early days, you know, sort of when it's fewer than 50 people, there is a particular sort of, there's a particular magic to that environment where you really feel this team dynamic where you know everybody, but there's enough capability on the team to get real things done. Everybody's working towards a clear goal. People stay aligned very easily because you can all, you can often all be in one room and that's great. But even beyond that, I think having having a culture that that makes people want to come to work every day is is really great. And you know, one of the things that I think that gets me excited about Lattice is the chance to make people happier at work because we spend such an enormous amount of time that we're awake working. And the sad truth is that I think most people don't love their work. Most mm-hmm. people would prefer to not be at work. And and that's okay. Work is, you know, work is a thing that must be done. And but to the extent that it can be made better for more people and to the extent that more people can be happier and more people can actually really look forward to Mondays and can't wait to get to work. That's that's what gets me excited about Lattice. And that's what I wanted to build internally as our culture as much as possible. And so to me that starts with that it starts and kind of ends with people. And so I think of culture very much through the lens of who's on your team because, you know, people are, you know, for the most part, people who work at these companies are adults. Um, you can't really change somebody. You can, you know, people can mold a little bit and they can sort of adapt to the ways that you work at your company, but people sort of are who they are in a deep sense. And so the thing that you can do is you can be very careful with, you know, who you have on your team. And that that is the main mechanism for for culture. And so that's, that, that was something that I wanted to make sure that we cared about a lot at Lattice because that was such an important part of my experience in spring. Great. And so I'm assuming, obviously, that you guys use Lattice internally as well. Do you find oh, that there is, yeah, of course. Do you find that the software is actually pretty blanket or given that you're in so many different industries, are there any surprising use cases or different needs across those industries? It is pretty similar across industries, although there are there are a few clear ideological differences. And so I'll give you like a quick example or two. One is that ratings are historically based very clearly off of off of goals and off of tangible sort of metrics that you can that you can look at. And so in a very sort of quote unquote old school traditional performance review, you would set people's goals at the beginning of the year, you would measure them. And then at the end of the year, you would give them a performance review pretty strictly based on how they performed, you know, along different metrics. Then you look at sort of a modern, you know, Silicon Valley tech company, and that's not really the way that they want to do things anymore. You know, the way that you would, you know, evaluate the performance of say, you know, an engineer at a startup isn't going to look like some metrics dashboard that you see, like, did they check these boxes? Instead, it's going to be, a little bit more qualitative feedback from peers and managers and people that they've worked with to sort of gauge how is this person performed, how well do they fit company values, how much potential do the people around them think that they have, and it becomes sort of a different looking process. And so to that extent, in different industries, it's it's appropriate to have different styles of, um, of evaluating performance. And so that's one difference. And so, you know, the software allows for sort of both of those, but that's those, those are sort of different ends of that spectrum. So, you know, there, 
it, it really does, you know, depends on the company, but I think for the most part, a lot of the intentions are the same. It's interesting that you said qualitative for engineering because we are in a phase of so much data creation and I think people are trying to be more data driven, but it sounds like those qualitative, almost not unidentifiable, but hard to pinpoint aspects are a really big driver of the product. So do you see that continuing or do you find that people still like to have actionable metrics and goals that are, you know, I want to deploy this much code or I want to, you know, create this many... Product fixes over the month, or is it more qualitative goals? So it's interesting, and there's no, as far as I can tell, there's no perfect answer to this, and there's not even a, there's not even the same ish answer for different companies. So as a couple examples, measuring the output of a salesperson can generally be much more quantitative than measuring the output of an engineer. So a salesperson, you. You know, there, there's actually more to it still, and I don't believe that a salesperson should just be measured on output, although it's actually a very good proxy in that kind of case for, for overall performance. Whereas with engineering, let's say you were to measure lines of code shift, you know, you can very quickly see that that's actually a terrible metric, and that's, that's not really what you're measuring. So people have considered other things that you might measure for an engineer. So, okay, well, let's measure the engagement of the products that they shipped. Well, if you told an engineer to ship a product that, you know, was a terrible idea, but they shipped it perfectly and on time and the code was beautiful and they got all the feedback they needed from different stakeholders. Are you really going to hold that engineer accountable for the fact that, you know, they were given a bad feature to build? So mm-hmm. for these kind of reasons, it's it's much more difficult to hold certain positions to to metrics as a way of evaluating performance than others. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have people give designations to people or, you know, make their very best assessment of do I think this person is, you know, outperforming their role and ready for a ready for a promotion or do I think that they're where they should be or do I think they're underperforming? You can still have people give an ultimate view on things and and you have to. But the sort of the way that you do metrics and is just different across different roles. Got it. And so now we're going to switch to our fun questions uh, to round out the interview. And so this fun, the first one is really funny for me because you were the answer that Fred from Rainforest gave me and that's how we got connected. So, you know, just realized it's a really important question. So what is another startup that you really love? Oh, um, that's a great question. And that's nice for Fred. Thank you, Fred. Um, <laughs> another startup that I really love is Intercom. So Intercom has been a product that we have used since, the very beginning, we got it immediately, and it it became a critical part of our workflow, pretty much out of the gate. And so, there's a few dimensions on which I love Intercom. One is I love that the product has it, they entered a market where there were you know lots of other products and other ways to do sort of customer service and to track your users and to communicate with your customers, but they simplified it all into this one tool that was so easy to use and just continually adds better and better features and products to it. And so from a utility perspective, it's been, it's been awesome for us. It's been, you know, one of our most highly used products. And then from a company perspective, I love the way that they've, the way that they've sort of gone to market via, via sort of content, via very strong views on the world in terms of what good product looks like, what it looks like to sort of, you know, build a company around, you know, very serious focused product views. I've just been so impressed when I read when I read that content. And so to me, that's that's a company that I look up to as as someone who has, you know, built an excellent product for a kind of old but very necessary space. 
and done so by telling a story to the world. Yes. And also they scaled really interestingly. So I've been, you know, using them for a few years and they very, you know, start with one product to do it very well and then sort of build out the suite from there. But it is funny you mentioned them because right when I went on your website, the design reminded me of Intercom's design. Actually, <laughs> I think it's the colors, the colors and the use of white space. I was like, why does this seem a little familiar? Uh, so I was thinking That's of Intercom. Funny. Yeah, we all look. We're also told that the um, that the that it's that the logo looks like Slack and some of the color schemes look like that. yeah so yeah inspiration everywhere. Yes, I mean that's but then again that's everywhere in the valley. <laughs> if you could interview one founder, who would it be and why? I would probably interview Elon Musk. I just think that the 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 level of ambition and the sort of unbridled sense of anything can be done is just so interesting to me, and it's so like that. You know, whenever I feel like something is difficult, you know, see, seeing someone like that who is just, you know, sort of the next level, e- even among founders who tend to be ambitious, it's this sort of otherworldly level of ambition and sense that we can do it. And I would just love to, I, w- I would love to interview him. Yeah, I agree. I love to, when he, when he tweets something like, I'm stuck in traffic, I'm going to change this. <laughs> just, <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's just every, every aspect of your life, but also the extremely lofty ambitions about, you know, traveling to space. The thing I would focus on with him would be um, just like how how does he how does he maintain that ambition and how does he always have that more so even than the execution of it. I just want to know how he finds that. So that'd be my person. Yeah, I also find it interesting that he, you know, after PayPal puts all of his money back into his companies. It's like not even that level of tenacity is unprecedented yeah. to me. Just like oh, I'm just gonna fully bet all on myself again. <laughs> yeah pretty fearless. All right. Well, Jack, thank you so much for being on my show today. It was awesome to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on episode 40. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.